You are listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at metagroup.org. That's www.metagroup.org. So welcome everybody. This is Deepening Your Practice. Deepening Your Practice is intended as an intermediate or an advanced class. And what that really means is that I'm not going to offer basic meditation instruction. I expect you already to know that. But that being said, if you find I'm talking about something and you don't understand what I'm talking about, I'm happy to answer any questions. I'm just not going to be doing basic uh, instructions. We've been going through the um, Manual of Insight, the new translation of the Mahasi Sayadaw text on Karnaka Samadhi. Karnaka Samadhi is a Pali word that means momentary concentration insight practice. So it's otherwise known as noting practice. So it's a, one of the dominant forms of meditation in uh, the West. Um, let's see here. I thought that actually if you wanted to we could talk about that process of what uh, intention and uh, resolution is, or and then maybe how to work with it meditation uh, through meditation, or we can continue on with uh, the Mahasi uh, stuff. Uh, tonight we would be talking about uh, the seven factors of enlightenment. What do you think? I often think that what we're attempting to give up are unskillful means of emotional regulation, so habits of being in the world. And uh, what often happens is, because they're emotionally regulating, uh, we just attempt to stop them without intentionally replacing them with something else that will be emotionally regulating. And so when this, the same pattern of experience happens, that led us to use the, the, the original bad habit, if you will. Um, we don't have an alternative to it, and so when the body-mind needs to regulate, it just goes back to the thing that we had. Um, everybody aware that they emotionally regulate? <laughs> or not. Or not, yes. Dysregulation. Dan Siegel, um, is the guy who coined the term window of tolerance, so that we all have a window of tolerance uh, for the intensity of emotion that we can just be with. And that if something happens and we react to the way that the emotional intensity is greater than our window of tolerance, then we have an emotional event that needs to be regulated. The body-mind is already set up to regulate pretty much every pattern of experience that it's already uh, uh, sensed, and so it just goes into the database and looks for the strategy that's currently associated with that pattern of distress, and then the mind uh, activates it, and, and then we begin the process of regulation by using that strategy. So, for instance, if you have addiction, You'll think of using in a moment like that, uh, if you use process addictions, uh, food or money or whatever it is that you do, sex, that will come to mind. But most often what we do is think. So something happens in the present moment, it exceeds our window of tolerance, there's an emotional event that needs to be regulated, and then the mind will start thinking about something. And part of the thought process uh, is an emotional piece. The present moment experience plays out on the surface of the body, face, front of the throat, front of the torso, inside of the arms, inside of the legs. And emotion that's generated by thinking plays in the same arena. So if something happens in the present moment and you suddenly notice that you're thinking about something that happened in the past, what's happening uh, from that uh, functional side uh, is that the body-mind is generating a strong emotion to displace the uh, awareness of the present moment. Um, the body-mind can generate intensity, so it can ramp, ramp it up so that it completely masks the experience. The present moment conditions change uh, usually pretty rapidly. The emotional response to the present moment changes rapidly and then the mind can turn off the story and bring you back into the experience of the present moment. Is that making sense? 
when you are a wee thing, your uh, caregivers instructed you not only what emotions were, but how to regulate them. And so you'll largely be using the pattern of, of emotional regulation that, that has been carried through your family system. Um, so the, er the earliest implanting of what an emotional experience is and how to regulate it is taught to you by your uh, caregivers. Then as your relational uh, history begins, any strong uh, connection that you make to somebody else, you'll, you'll be able to learn how they do it and some of those strategies you'll adopt and some you won't. So by the time you're um, our ages, you'll have this mix of uh, systems that were very early that you've been using forever and newer ones that you've learned along the way. Some of them will be useful, some of them will be skillful, and some of them won't. And so part of this is to investigate which ones are beneficial and which ones are afflictive. Then the idea is to stop using the afflictive ones. And the Buddha describes a ladder of repression that you should begin to use to suppress unskillful mind states, which includes in the most uh, violent form uh, just complete annihilation of the, that thought. Um, in some sense, what the meditation path is and the, the enlightenment path is, is about uh, eliminating all negative mind states. And in order to eliminate all negative mind states, uh, if they're part of this emotional regulation system that you have, you're going to have to replace them with strategies that are not afflictive in order to do that. You don't really have a choice about whether you regulate or not. Uh, you have to regulate. What you do have is some agency in how you do it. So if you notice that the mind is taking you off in the direction of an unskillful thought, you want to suppress the thought and then uh, replace it. One of the things that happens is, often in the repressing of afflictive uh, regulation strategies, is we're left with a deficit of capacity to regulate. And so uh, part of the process is uh, this training of the mind to use alternative means of regulating. But the new systems often don't work as well as the old ones do. And if you're in a situation where you absolutely need to regulate and you stop the afflictive strategy and push in the beneficial one, and it doesn't work well enough, the mind will just toss it out and go back to the, the one that does work. We talk mostly about metta practice and noting feeling states practice as the, the um, um, best way to develop alternative emotional regulation skills. Um, it's sometimes useful to develop metaphrases that are direct antidotes to the phrase that you're using to regulate. Um, for instance, I was talking to a student uh, this afternoon and um, the the strategy that he was using to regulate himself was that you're ugly and you'll never succeed. Uh, and so the, the, the phrase that he was using to counter that was, I'm beautiful. You following me on that? Mm -hmm. He was using them to do what? To uh, regulate his emotion. Like what kind of emotion? Um, I, I think that the emotion that he was experiencing was fear. So he has an, a, a fear reaction to the present moment and the mind begins to generate the thought you're ugly and you'll never succeed at anything. Which creates an intense experience of sadness which then dampens down the experience of fear. It also dampens down the ability to do much at all, to move forward in any way or to be in relationship with anybody else. It does regulate the fear, but it would be considered an afflictive strategy. On the other hand, I'm beautiful, if, it, if you do it with enough intensity, becomes emotionally regulating for fear, and that was what he was reporting, 
that it was much slower to regulate and that he had to be very diligent in, in, in practicing that, but that uh, it was eventually regulating of the, the fear that had come up. Over what period of time, do you know? He said that it took over an hour of practicing to get it to be regulating, whereas uh, the other one was regulating almost immediately, but it was, com was completely debilitating in terms of his ability to function. But he, he um, his, enti his entire practice was only an hour, or something done over several months? Oh, um, today's period of practice that was relieving of the, the anxiety was an hour. Um, I, I, he's probably been practicing for about five years. Okay, let me try again. Uh, was this the first time that he learned about this strategy? No. Today. So, because to me the question is how long does it take to do that habitually? So right. I can practice it for an hour, but right. tomorrow if I have a similar experience, I'm going to probably use my default strategy I'm discussing. Yes, I would say. So. So when you recognize that you're using it, you suppress right. it and replace it. Right. So do you have a sense for how, if, if this person has already been able to replace it, what was, what period of time had elapsed? Well, it's not an on-off switch. It's more of a progression. Um, and in the, in the stages of change, what you'll notice is that the body-mind will offer you both choices. That, that seems to be the intermittent, intermediary stage. Something happens, it's of a particular pattern, and then the mind says, do you want to use metta or do you want to use the, the old strategy? And you need to be re religious in picking the new strategy, which won't work as well. Um, if you do that often enough, then what you'll notice is that the mind just goes into the beneficial strategy and doesn't go into the afflictive strategy anymore. And if you keep at that, um, the, the mind will uh, strip that out and be gone. Um, but this is going to be a question that's really based on your conditioning and how many, um, how many of the strategies that you use are uh, afflictive and not finished. It's unlikely that everybody has only afflictive strategies. You're going to have a mixture of good ones and not good ones. And it may also be the intensity of the distress that in the beginning, uh, the things that are of lower intensity, you can use the, the beneficial strategies with really well, and that begins to move pretty quickly. But then some things that are really upsetting that take a lot of regulation, the new strategies still aren't strong enough to, to work, and so the mind will go back to the, the afflictive ones. Um, so do you generate afflictive sadness? Do you generate afflictive anger? Do you generate afflictive fear? Do you generate afflictive shame? Do you generate afflictive helplessness? These are the main afflictive strategies. If you don't have a good capacity to mentalize, mentalizing is where you can track what you're thinking so that you can see what you're doing. It's probably going to be easier for you to track somebody in your family and watch how they do it because they'll be doing it the same as you're doing it, because that, they learned it too in the family system. <laughs> no blame here if you, um, so you're the kid and you say to your parents, why did you teach me all these bum, bummer ways of emotionally regulating and their response is likely <laughs> to be, <laughs> I, I did the best I could teaching you the things that I knew that worked. Oh, no, that's not mine. No. This is what you got. This is what you got? This is it. This is it? This is it. That's the cut. That's it. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. <laughs> no more. If you don't like it, lump it. My sense is, most of the time, your caregivers uh, try to take care of you in a good way. It's just that their conditioning uh, um, takes over. Even if you um, make a solid intention to do the very best, 
it's a cognitive decision to do that. And raising children is very stressful. And we know that stress negatively affects your cognitive ability to the point that actually you'll lose it altogether and you'll just be operating from procedural memory. And procedural memory is the place of the storehouse of all of these uh, family patterns that are handed down. Um, something happens, it creates stress, you lose your cognitive ability, and then you just respond to the situation. Most of the time, um, particularly with uh, new parents, they don't have any reference for what to do where they're the parent but they have reference for what happened to them when they were in a similar situation as a child, and it flips, and they become identified with the caregiver, and uh, the memory of them as a child becomes their, their child, and then they do the same thing with the intention of it being good care. And if it isn't? So having, uh, since having met you, and um, you know, becoming familiar with your basic teachings surrounding uh, emotional regulation and obviously the attachment uh, strategies and, um, you know, metta and vipassana, or that's, you know, uh, insight meditation. Mm -hmm. I've continued to meditate, investigate, and, and deepen my practice. I'm, I think I am as far as I can get uh, without having some questions answered right. and some more guidance. Um, but the... The really difficult thing is that uh, wanting to work on the attachment, um, you know, the, the replacing the old attachment stuff. I've, I've found myself now more isolated um, and alone <laughs> and lonely than almost ever before because I continue down this path of um, not wanting to fail in that department. So a lot of fear surrounding uh, interacting and, and, and you know, cultivating meaningful relationships with people um, out of fear of, of messing up another relationship or losing another friend or, or whatever it may be. Um, that now I, I have very so few people in my life anymore that, um, and my meditation is as sound as it can be, like I said, without getting some things answered. And um, it's just been a real struggle uh, to. Uh, ask for help. Uh, you know, that's one of my, you know, the stuff that you talk about from our caregivers, that's one of the things that is extremely difficult for me to do. I've done everything up until basically needing you kind of on my own, uh, trying to figure it out, you know, trial and error, lots of error, <laughs> you know, so on and so forth. And, um, you know, I'm struggling right now with this, you know, what is the separation between you know, nihilism and Buddhism in terms of detachment, you know, uh, when you say uh, metta practice, I've done a lot of that. I, I've been able to get rid of, um, you know, certain, uh, one of my big ailments was to uh, be prone to like delusion and fantasy. And so I started identifying any delusion or fantasy to take myself out of a, a, right, a dysregulated state. Uh, by saying, Mara, I see you, Mara, I see you. And a lot of that is gone. It's just gone, you know? And, and when it does rear its head, which it did earlier or later last week uh, in my morning walk and meditation, as soon as I say, you know, Mara, I see you, it's literally obliterated. Like you said, it just goes away. Yeah. It's just gone. And it doesn't seem to come back for a while. Uh, but it took, it's been a year and a half or two, almost two years of you know, daily practice and, and working through these things. I've read probably 13 or 14 different books. I'm currently on the mindfulness book from um, um, Goldstein. Yes, Goldstein, exactly. And so that's brought up a bunch of stuff for me now where I'm really, when we get into the, um, you know, the hindrances and and being aware as I am of my thought stream, most of the time in, in waking life, I, I see where I'm headed or I see thoughts come and I'm able to, to note that that's what's happening, that that's impermanent, that I can move through that. Um, but I'm lacking a connection with other people. And you know, the, at sometimes I get so dysregulated still that I just have to remove myself. That's the strategy that I've come up with. It's working to not 
you know, destroy relationships that I currently have is I just have to say, I need to go out for a second. I can't respond to you right now. I'm just not capable of it. And I just leave, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, and that's difficult. I mean, it's really difficult. I'm also trying to re get reintegrated with my son who I didn't realize until, you know, the past year, year and a half that as he moves through different stages of life, it's creating a shit ton of turmoil for me. You know, mm -hmm. just, a, just really, really uh, tumultuous uh, emotional states that uh, are really difficult to attenuate. You know, they really are. And so um, that's why I'm back, you know. Mm -hmm. That's why I need to um, deepen my practice, you know, get to another level. I think there's more to it. I think that uh, I believe that there's more to it that, uh, you know, you All might of these things can be, you know, dealt with this way. Consider mentoring with a teacher. Well, yeah, as soon as I get a job, okay. I will. <laughs> <laughs> so, one of the things about uh, attachment, uh, attachment isn't the whole game, but it's, it's early. Most, for most people, attachment is really pretty solidified by the time you're three. The I just was at the uh, attachment conference at Harvard and there's a new uh, fMRI study that shows that the first installation of attachment happens between two and five months. So it's really early. You're, you develop a working model of yourself and a working model of the world based on how you were responded to as an infant between the ages of zero and five months. And that's your basic installation of who you are, your capability, and what you can expect from the world. But you don't remember. But it creates, you know, the Buddhist idea of you. It creates how you see yourself, the lens of how you see yourself, and the lens of how you see, uh, or how what you expect from the world, and then you go about uh, um, your energy regulation based on that. Um, when, you, when you get to be four or five years old and your caregivers uh, turn you out into the world, you begin uh, to develop a relationship history based on your interactions with people you choose to be in relationship, not the people that were chosen for you to be in relationship with. This is completely informed by your early attachment because the way that you show up in the relationship is informed by the attachment and then it's the luck of the draw, who you, who you got and whether or not they wanted to be in relationship with you and that, and that the mixture of those uh, attachment styles produced a, a relationship that was good for you or a relationship that wasn't good for you. Uh, and that relationship history reinforces your view of other people in the world. So we have these two strong levels of conditioning. And then the third piece in adult relationships is around conflict resolution. We all grow up in family systems and we learn how to uh, negotiate conflict based on the strategy that our caregivers use to negotiate conflict between them and the, the strategies that they use to negotiate conflicts with us. We most of the time think that that's the normal way that one would resolve conflicts. We, because view is so ubiquitous and so complete, we almost think that everybody resolves conflicts that way or that everybody should resolve conflicts that way. And so when you go into adult relationships um, and you have a system for uh, negotiating conflict that doesn't mesh well with somebody else's system for negotiating conflict, it tends to exacerbate the conflict rather than uh, ameliorate it. In interpersonal relationships, it's the paying attention to those things. We would talk about it really as withdrawing into no self. Don't need to defend the big horizons of self that come from these different systems operating. <coughs> I talk about the structure of relationships. You don't need so many relationships. You need to have three or four close functioning relationships to be well regulated. Uh, it's important to pay attention to whether the, the, the relationships are regulating. 
emotional regulation or compassionate regulation um, is an unconscious and automatic process. And so really the idea is to pay attention to who you find uh, emotionally regulates you easily that, and, and to value that. And then to investigate whether you uh, emotionally regulate them easily. And if you have a match on both sides of that, that's extraordinarily rare and very valuable. And so you want to put time, care, and energy into those relationships because they're so useful. If you find that somebody regulates you but you're dysregulating for them, they won't want to be close and uh, you could get into a craving situation where you really want them to regulate you but they don't have a, a mutual experience of it and so they don't want to. For the reverse where you regulate them and they want that but uh, you don't find them regulating so you don't, you don't want to. Relationships where neither party gets the regulation don't really flower too much because nobody gets anything out of them. Right? Most people who um, come from insecure attachment do not put sufficient energy into relationships to maintain uh, secure relationships because their experience has been it's a waste of energy. And and they are not wrong, those relationships didn't function well, and so they weren't, you, they, you didn't get enough out of them to put the amount of energy into to them to make them secure. So the process then is to um, uh, evaluate in each of the relationships what's there so that you can um, um, make sure that you're putting the appropriate amount of energy into those relationships. It's not to say that you can't have relationships with um, people that um, the, the regulatory aspect isn't uh, strong, you can, but you need to put an appropriate amount of, of energy into those relationships. And when you find somebody who regulates you and you regulate them, to really value it and, and to try and make those relationships work. Um, I don't think it's a bad idea to separate yourself if you're so dysregulated that you can't regulate with them. It would be then better to um, regulate with someone else and come back into balance and then repair. If you look at the development of emotional uh, regulation in infants, the first thing that they learn to do is auto-regulate. They're totally inwardly focused and they regulate themselves because they're not really even aware that other people exist who are coming to take care of them. As their brain develops and they begin to have the capacity to monitor the outside world more, they, um, um, you know, we call it stranger anxiety in our culture, when the baby begins to respond to people that they don't know differently than people that they recognize, that's when this process shifts from pure auto-regulation into external regulation. They begin to look for the caregiver to come and take care of them and to regulate them. And this is when we begin to learn what emotions are and how to regulate them. We're literally in this distance from our caregiver and they're, they're empathetically connecting to us and they say, oh, you're feeling happy or oh, you're feeling sad and then they'll teach us how to regulate that. In that dynamic of the, the infant turning to the caregiver for regulation and the uh, caregiver regulating the infant, we learn the empathetic exchange of co-regulation. There's a constant back and forth, a constant uh, exchange of information in this dyadic relationship. And then we learn co-regulation, we learn the value of co-regulation, and then we internalize the strategies that we learn in that dyadic relationship and begin to be able to explore <coughs> regulating ourselves as we explore. That's called self-mastery. If you have good skill at this, then most of the time you're in self-mastery and you're in co-regulation. Um, And that's really useful for exploration. And then if the relationships are mutual, uh, you're, you get co-regulated when you need it, and you co-regulate the other person when they need it. And there's a, an easy exchange of this, and not a rigidness around 
it having to be absolutely equal, it becomes mutual, even if one person gets more than the other. When you need to withdraw to regulate, that's auto-regulation. So you're, you're, it's an indication that the external regulation uh, experience with the caregiver wasn't happening well, and that it also suggests that the co-regulation is going to be a difficulty. And so we, we, you really want to pay attention to that aspect uh, and, and really understand that it's unconscious and automatic and there's not that much you can do to affect it beyond the ability to be there pretty much from the beginning. Is that making sense? And this is conditioning, right? If you have the co-regulation piece uh, with the other person, then often the difficulty is the, the conflict resolution. So if you have that, that basic layer of the capacity to co-regulate, then what needs to be negotiated is the conflict resolution strategies. And these are deals that you make in the relationship, even around prescribed language, that sort of thing. Um, so that you're, you're actually communicating when you're in a relationship with someone else, you're actually uh, in charge of their care, so that when you see that they're dysregulated and in trouble, your, your obligation then is to set aside the things that you need taken care of and to attend to them until they're in a position where they could actually attend to the situation that you have presented. Um, is, that, is that making sense, how that works? You can have a conflict with somebody and you can see that they're not in a place where they could actually have a conversation about it. And if you can't regulate yourself well enough that you can table it, then you'll demand that they attend to the thing that you need them to attend to. And they won't be able to do it and it will create a real uh, potential for uh, harm in the relationship. So, those are the kinds of things. Some people are able to mentalize better than others, you know what I mean by that? Some, pe some people are able to track their thought processes better than other people. And, and that also is related to attachment conditioning. Secure people tend to be able to track their mind states pretty well because they had a dyadic relationship with somebody who was responsive enough to them and was open and authentic enough to them that they could learn to read mind states from their caregiver and then they could interject that experience and learn to read their own. If you had condition a, a relationship with your caregiver that was insecure, then your response is going to be different than that. If you had an inconsistent caregiver, your capacity to read their mind state is going to be pretty good, but you'll, you'll have spent so little attention on your own mind state that you're your own capacity to read your own inner state will be uh, um, not so good. If your uh, caregiver was consistently neglectful, then um, you won't have learned to read other people's mind states particularly well. You won't have what? You won't have learned to read other people's mind states particularly well. Um, in empathy, there's three levels of empathy. The first level is where you have a visceral, automatic response to the perception of someone else's pain. This is, in, in interpersonal relationships, a foundational uh, skill. If you can't read somebody else's pain, there are no breaks on, on what you're willing to do in that relationship. Because we all use that perception of other people's pains as an inhibitor for our actions in the relationship, and if you can't read somebody else's pain, there's no inhibition into what, what, uh, what kind of intensity of cruelty you're willing to go to. The second level of empathy is where you can read the facial expressions and body language of somebody and interpret that as what their inner feeling is, even if you don't have a sense of feeling them. And then the third level is the compassionate empathy, where you actually create in your body a facsimile of 
the, what you think their inner experience is. And if you're good at reading mind states, other people's mind states, it's, it's a pretty close mapping of what, what's happening with them. We tend to compare the second and third level of, of empathetic responses, the presentation of the external with the internal experience. And if they match, we tend to believe that the person is being authentic, and if they don't match, we question them and think that they're either being inauthentic, manipulative, or lying. That's how we judge it. If you were neglected as a child, then you didn't have the dyadic experience of that, and so you don't tend to develop the third level of empathy. The consistent rejection of the caregiver is so painful that uh, people like uh, people who use a dismissing attachment strategy suppress awareness of their emotion. So um, the, the capacity for the third level of empathy is unavailable to them because in suppressing their own emotion they also suppress awareness of the empathetic experience. If, you, if, you, if the neglect was profound, you won't have been instructed in what emotions are or what, how to read faces. So you won't have much of a second level of empathy either. So these early conditioning things really affect that. If you can't read somebody else's internal life very well, then if they're not telling you in words, you won't know how to respond to them. And that's that. These are the different kinds of. Uh, Isn't that a double-edged sword, though? What? No. Can it be a double-edged sword? How do you mean? Well, if I know that you're sad or know or feel and, and have not only am aware of it visually but also you know in some empathic connection feel that um, without knowing how to deal with it how does that I mean that you know if you can take on that connection then you're left with someone else's pain not knowing how to give back the right response you know the right response or the skillful response to Right. To regulate that. Right. Yeah. So, in terms of intimate relationships, you need to ask them how to do it. And then you need to remember that when they're in that state, this is the thing you do to get them out of it. That's actually what I mean by you being in charge of their care. It, it is unlikely that you'll be able to intuit or magically guess how to do it. You actually have to be willing to ask them, and they have to be willing to tell you authentically what to do, and that's the intimate, authentic connection. If you're unwilling to, to validate that actually that's what's going on for you, and you're unwilling to tell them, or you don't know what to do to regulate it, then there's going to be a constant issue around that experiencing coming up. Or what if they don't know? Well, if they don't know, then you, you have this marvelous opportunity to explore different things that might work. And that would be a, you know, you would have to allow yourself to be vulnerable to express what the experience is. And then the other person would have to be vulnerable enough to, to attempt different things. So throwing your hands up in the air and just turning around and walking out, that's, that's not a good strategy, right? <laughs> Well, I would experience that as abandoning <laughs> if it happened to me. So if, if you look at the nature of secure relationships, there's a, the bedrock is reliability. That if you need the other person to show up for you, they'll sh show up. Reliability is matched with mutuality. That uh, you take care of them because uh, they will take care of you when you need it. So that's the deal, right? Um, and then that creates a level of trust that you can rely on them. It comes from being able to rely on them, that you trust them. And if you trust them, uh, then you're willing to attune openly and allow the, the flow of empathetic experience between you and you're willing to show up authentically. But that only comes if the layer of trust is there, which will only come if the reliability and mutuality is there. Allow yourself to be seen authentically and tell people what you need, uh, and, or you figure out between the two of you what, what good care is of the person is, then that the capacity for co-regulation, for soothing in the relationship emerges. 
And then um, this thing happens spontaneously where the other person is delighted to see you. You walk in the room and they just light up with delight because they know they're going to feel good in a few minutes because you can co-regulate them and you're safe and they can express authentically who they are. So that felt sense of delight is really something to pay attention to. And then uh, the other aspect is that they're uh, supportive of your exploration. This requires them to be able to hold their abandonment anxiety as you, you go off and explore what's meaningful to you. And then they need to greet you with the delight when you come back and are willing to share with them what you found out about the world. And that's the basis of a secure relationship. Now, if that's just what happened to you when you were a kid, um, you learned how to do all of that and you don't even have to think about it. It's just all automatic and, and much easier. <laughs> but if that didn't happen to you, you can certainly learn how to do all of that. And meditation is really good for that. started with my palms, felt like the heat was actually going through my palm down to my leg. Mm. And then as I got a little more concentrated, my lips were uh, pretty much full time. You call that titi. What's that? It's a Pali word that means rapture. So you, you begin to notice these vibratory energies sometimes, or heat is often described. Um, it, it's a side effect of being concentrated. It can completely take the whole body. Like it's really what? It is. Um, it's called dissolution. It's the fifth stage of the progress of insight, and um, when it gets really uh, fully intense, you can't distinguish the inside from the outside of the body. And it's an indication of a, of a, of a, a deep insight into uh, no self-impermanence and reactivity or unsatisfactoriness. It can be disruptive, however. I think there's a difference between the phrase, uh, may you be peaceful when referring to yourself and may I be peaceful mm -hmm. when referring to yourself? Um, it really depends on where you're identifying. Um, sometimes we, uh, we can be reflecting on an old experience of self and, and feel a separation between where we are now and the old experience of self. Um, it's an interesting thing to notice that. May I be peaceful, may you be peaceful, um, depending on where that identification is in the moment. When we started, that's a, I started with you and then switched to I in regards to self. Mm -hmm. yeah. Good. Have your hand up. When you do this at home, and you start with may you be peaceful or may someone be peaceful, I never quite figure out how much time I've spent, so it's not very equal. Mm. So I might be stuck on may you be peaceful for a long time, and then, oh, the timer goes off. And so is there, is that necessary, or is this, is it, 
since part of the exercise is to evolve from, to go from the other to oneself, is how do you In today's do practice this? we did that. When I was at home, I would probably just pick one and do that the whole time. Um, the, um, when, so this retreat that we're going to in Myanmar uh, is a Metajana retreat, and so we'll spend three days on, the, on going through every person we know in order to see who's easy and who's easy. <laughs> and then we'll go to ourselves and we'll spend three days on ourselves. And then we'll go to uh, friends and family and spend three days going through every single friend or family member. And then we'll spend three days going through neutral people. And then three days going through difficult people. And then the last three days of the retreat or so, we're doing all sentient beings. Um, but it, it really, you, if you go uh, in that way carefully through, you really get a sense of who's reliable and who isn't in terms of generating the mind state. And then also, you can really reinforce the mind state as one of the capacities when you think of yourself. And then once you have established the, the, that intensity of practice, difficult people are typically easy to practice with. Even the most difficult people are easy to practice with, because you have the momentum of it. And then you get into a jhanic state, which is this intensely blissful state. Uh, you can see it happen on the retreat. Uh, typically, people are shuffling around grumbling for the first week or so, and then they begin to pop. And you see them walking around in these bliss states, doing the same thing. It's really interesting. I sometimes call them bliss bombs, because you can see somebody walk in and just be hit with this intense bliss experience, which doesn't last very long, maybe a few breaths, but then they keep coming. Morning? No, it's uh, in Southeast Asia. Oh, got it. AKA Burma. Got it. I came back on the retreat, and that weekend, like after, I was completely in the moment and worry free, and I was like, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> I started to worry that I was worry free. <laughs> Well, interestingly enough, coming back around, you're replacing the anger generation with uh, the metta. And it's working, but it, plus it has the advantage of not being afflictive. And so you're, you're regulating and also not putting yourself in this state of adrenaline, cortisol, and all of that other stuff that it takes to generate anger. It's awesome. I mean, it's mostly toward the people in my gym. But it's like a daily basis because I go every day, and I just figure, like, I mean, I could just be angry with them, that's bad for me. I'm not going to do anything to them, so right. might as well send them that out. It yeah. actually works. So. Awesome. I'm so glad. Well, thank you for coming. This is Deepening Your Practice. Um, we're always advocating ways to deepen your practice. Uh, the next Meaningful Life Retreat is in New York uh, in April at the Watershed Center in Millerton, which is in the Hudson Valley. It's really beautiful. Um, it's a progressive uh, center, which I also like. It um, was founded by some of the people from the Occupy Wall Street movement, and it's a, a center that's for training progressive activists. Uh, and we're the only meditation retreat that they uh, have there, because they want to have that, that side as well. So it's a 10-day retreat. You can come for the full retreat, or you can come for, uh, uh, I think it's, Four or six days in addition. What is it? It's in April, April 13th. Is it still cold in New York? It's spring like. <laughs> <laughs> it which, might still be. Which means it could be cold. warm, it 
could be cold. We're going to also do another retreat up at the Seven Circles Center. So family friendly. That was a well, no, they they replaced both of the air conditioners with new ones. Um, I, I, it was hot in the yurt last year, but I also have to say that it, it was a record-breaking heat wave. Uh, uh, 134 heat records were broken that week in the state of California. So, uh, um, and it, I, I I I like the heat, so it wasn't a big bother to me. But it was it was hot. Um, so that's in, in July. Um, we have some intensive classes starting in uh, March. So you can see out there I have flyers for that. There's a level one and a level two meaningful life intensive. So the level one is a informational class which uh, covers, it's a kind of psychoeducation and meditation training. And then if you've already done any of the meaningful life level one classes, you can do the you could do the meaningful life level two class instead, which is focused specifically on strategies for repair, and what's uh, never been offered by us before. It includes the idealized parent figure meditation protocol in each class, uh, and uh, you're supported by a mentor that will also help you with the idealized parent figure protocol. And this is a, a meditation. Um, that is designed to repair the early attachment conditioning. And, but it, in level two, we're focused on shifting uh, your current relationships into secure territory. So there's an analysis of how you respond in relationships and then what uh, the secure uh, thing is. It's much easier to shift your uh, uh, behavior in relationships to a secure foundation than it is to do the deep work about leaving the uh, attachment um, conditioning. And level three is for that, and that one includes doing an AAI, so we know specifically what your attachment is and then how to do that. That will be offered next September. Um, the classes here are offered on a Donna basis. The suggested Donna is $20. Uh, but if that doesn't feel generous to you, then give it a level that's appropriate to your means. I'm giving you my last dollar today. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> um, uh, you can put cash in the bowl out there, or I can take cards. Thank you for coming. We'll see you next yeah. week.